0: Coming up in this episode.
1: And I felt, I was like, man, like if I'm training the same way as this other guy or this team or this person, how can I possibly be better? And that's what led me to try to seek out more, try to study, try to, essentially it it was, it was all about work ethic. So how could I learn more about the sport than any other person who was in the sport competing? How can I train harder than anyone else? How can I handle more training volume? How can I understand recovery? And those small incremental improvements trickled down all the way to mindset. I didn't just want to win. I wanted to to do something that was extraordinary in the sport. And I wanted to surpass my own potentials of what was possible. And I just had an inner belief that the mind was the gateway into that different dimension of performance, into the next era and the realm. And the only one who was going to go through that door was going to be me. And and I thrived on it. When my team didn't want to do something, I made myself love that type of training.
0: Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health Via Modern Nutrition. Hey, this is your host, Jeffrey Wu with the HVMN Podcast. I hope you are safe and well. It's still... A bit of a scary time, but the light is at the end of the tunnel, and I hope you guys stay resilient, stay positive as you weather the storm together. Today, I'm really excited to bring on Apollo Ono. He's the most decorated American winter Olympian, and you might have seen him on Dancing with the Stars, of course, all his Olympic medals, but one of the things I've really appreciated about Apollo is his thoughtfulness and his mental resiliency, Apollo Welcome to the program.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad we could finally connect.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's been definitely some phone and email tag over the last couple of years, but hey, it's not a bad context to finally connect live and synchronously in a global epidemic. How are you holding up?
1: I, I'm holding up well. So we, you know, we've been in lockdown since March seventh. Uh, we feel very grateful for the fact that you know, kind of, we have what we need here and. Trying to be as you know productive and present as possible on a daily basis—that seems to be the two strengths that I'm using as anchors on a daily basis—is um, to do those two things. But overall, I, you know, I, I I found my routine, I found my groove, and it's really been um, an interesting process. Both, you know, I think psychologically, um, physiologically, in terms of not having access to the same type of equipment that we normally do to kind of move our bodies and such, but adapting and pivoting and reinventing new ways and paradigms in which we can stay healthy and still have that level of fulfillment that we normally have with outside, you know, interaction and contact. So, it's been a really interesting um, time and, and, and really just uh, uh, very grateful to have what we need.
0: Yeah, one of the most interesting things that I've picked up through your previous interviews and podcasts is your thoughtfulness around that mental resiliency, that mental game obviously, in high-level sport, as well as now, you know, you have a number of interests in business and want to zoom back into that mental zone, especially in this time now where I would say a lot of folks have their routines disrupted while on the physiological virology side, very scary on the infection of the virus itself. But we already start seeing tolls on the mental side with depression, anxiety, folks losing their jobs, uh people getting that post traumatic stress syndrome from some of the frontline workers who are are seeing folks getting carted off get your general thoughts in that mental <coughs> transition um whether your background in sport and you know top level competition has application or a translation into a strong mental state for surviving thriving you know figuring out a new normal uh today
1: well look i think number one i think all of us have the ability Uh, To create resiliency and to reinvent and to pivot and adapt to this really new, unprecedented in our lifetime situation. Um, I think athletes are more accustomed to adapting to really any type of environment that doesn't lend itself to produce, you know, the normally sought after results. So my entire career was based around mindset. And when I retired, you know, a decade ago, uh, I started to recognize and dove very deep into just how powerful our minds are, how I can learn to really just adapt to any environment and situation and transition out of kind of one sole identity of being this Olympic athlete into exploring other facets of my personality, etc. So the the the, the transition was, was challenging for me as it was for many people. I think in the first couple of weeks that I thought that this was going to be locked down, I was, you know, 'm a very kind of eternally motivated and optimistic person, and so I had, I had this list of things that I knew that I was going to accomplish and that I had to do uh, and then in two weeks, I recognized pretty quickly that it was it took a, it took time and it took a toll on me mentally to really find that groove <clears throat> and rhythm that we we normally have when we have interactions with other human beings on a daily basis outside of the Zoom and 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 you know digital space. It, I, I noticed that I really craved that, so it took some time for me to adapt mentally. Um, and I do think um, you know Olympic athletes, particularly and, and athletes in general, have this unique ability to adapt to these environments. But it's something that very interesting that, that came up the other day was you know a friend of mine does and he represents a lot of Olympic and, and Paralympic athletes <clears throat> and. You know, a lot of these athletes were training just until recently as if the Olympic Games were going to be underway in July. As you know, you've got four to eight years of your life to prepare for this one moment. And so you're trying to time your peak physiologically, you know, mentally. All these things are coming for a two-week period of time in which you have to be your absolute best and so they were training with this unknown factor of will the games be delayed will they be canceled are they going to go through as planned how do i do that and and finally when the IOC released that and said we are going to actually delay these olympic games till 2021 i think a lot of athletes had a sigh of relief and then some those particularly who are older and this is maybe their third or fourth or even fifth olympic games it's really challenging, right? Because they don't know if they have another year left in their legs, so to speak, right? Everything they've given is this last run, this last go. And so that mental shock was really, really challenging for a lot of people. And I can relate to that because, you know, it's like someone taking away, like if you're in the greatest shape of your life and you're about to go and compete, then all of a sudden someone says, oh, wait, you got to wait another year, Um there's a lot of kind of external factors you cannot control. And so that mind, that monkey mind starts to have these internal conversations that uh, are, are really interesting. And I I had them even though I wasn't competing. Um, But overall, I think the resiliency and the adaptation components associated with being in that flow state, developing um, this, this chameleon esque mentality towards challenges it has to be an attribute and a strength. But the beauty is I think all human beings have that. We just have to train it consistently.
0: 100%. I think for folks who are puzzled that, hey, you get a year delay, it's not that big of a deal. I think f- folks fail to realize that when you're competing <clears throat> entry at that level, that's almost heartbreaking because that's another extra year of sacrificing essentially 120% of your life dedicated to a singular craft. <laughs> And, uh, just having a lot of friends who've competed at that level. I mean, this is waking up at ridiculous points in the morning, training two, maybe three times a day, managing weight, managing your relationships. So you can maybe peak for that July, 2020 in that summer, but if that's pushed out to 2021, uh, yeah, the reality of your physicality, right? People don't have infinite time as a top tier athlete. Uh, And it was also social relationship tolls. It's not easy uh, being the best in the world in anything. Um, You almost sacrifice all aspects of your life there. For sport, I think the cursory knowledge is that okay, physicality, some sort of genetic talent on the physical side seems to dominate. But when did you realize that mindset was a weapon? did you do you think you had a specific edge or early realization earlier in your career whether as you're you know an amateur or, or you know going to the olympics was there a moment where you're like okay my mental strength is an edge that people haven't fully caught up with or haven't fully invested into
1: it absolutely was an attribute that i felt like was my edge it was my strength it was the differentiating factor It was the sole deciding factor between me hitting the podium and and me not. So, you know, when I look back on my career as a competitive athlete, I think the reality is that many athletes that we competed against were superior in terms of their raw genetic talent and ability. Hmm. That is a fact. Their body types were designed in a way that would be better suited for the biomechanics of short track speed skating than I was. It could be torso length. It could be knee length, knee to calf length um, or knee to ankle length. It could be the way that pelvis is rotated, right? Are they, are they rotated back? Are they rotated forward? Um, many different components really come into play when uh, you're looking at the physiology of, of a potential great Olympic athlete. And there were several. There's actually many that had far superior um, you know, genetic makeup. And so I I kind of saw that early that I couldn't copy other athletes in terms of what they were doing. I didn't have the ability to skate the way that they could. And I had to extrapolate all of the great athletes who I looked up to from a technical perspective. I looked at the way that they trained. I looked at their, I tried to get information and data on their recovery times, what type of watts were they pushing on a bike, what type of squat for how many reps, what type of training protocol. It's hard, right? Because you're kind of se- searching for these like, secret answers so you can compare yourself against um, how you're doing. Like, you know, I saw that you're doing a lot of MRF exercise, uh, MRF com- uh, yeah. workouts, right? Like, yeah. you're probably looking to see like, okay, well, what is my time in relation to everyone else, right? So I can, I can have some kind of level of gauge because, you know, we train all year long and sometimes we don't see each other only twice a year. I recognize that genetically I couldn't change the way that I was, but I could change the way that my body responded to both pain. To training, to recovery, my intentionality around each training session, uh, and the way that I approached the sport in terms of understanding it as a student. So I I really poured out my cup of knowledge and emptied it. Started from scratch every single year as if I was a true beginner. Worked on technical components and aspects that I normally would teach someone who's eight or nine years old. When I was in my you know my twenties, um, something that I do very naturally. And really relearn the basic essential steps and fundamental layers of becoming a great short track speed skating athlete. Uh, And then that transferred into understanding the power of the mind. So my first foray into the the power of the mind was when I was 15 years old, believe it or not. Um, I had just made my second team. I was living in the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, and we had just hired an assistant coach slash sports psychologist. So people say, well, why do you have a sports psychologist? What is the purpose of that? Uh, So traditionally, a sports psychologist is brought in to help athletes maximize the potential that they have within their performance. Meaning, how do we look at the way that you approach training, pain, recovery, uh, dedication, focus, concentration, your visualization, what type of mindfulness or meditative practices are you doing? So this is 1998. 1998, this guy was brought in. He was a young student who was studying at the Colorado College. And I remember this distinctly because he had said to the team, I'm going to help you guys create the best version of yourself using the power of the mind. Something along those lines. Hmm. And all of us were like, oh, what the
0: hell is Yeah, was that happening? cheesy as a 15-year-old or were you like, wow, just, it was, it, be-
1: we just"? I was like, this guy, who is this guy? who has never stepped foot on the ice, who has never been an athlete in my, in, in my view, uh, trying to give me advice. Like, where are his credentials? He doesn't, he's not a psychologist yet. How could he possibly speak about these things? Right. Slowly, he broke me down. And eventually I said, okay, let me see what this is all about. And it was really like an inner desire to just explore the unknown of the possibilities, right? I just wanted to go outside the room. And part of it was because my entire team totally shunned this guy. They completely said, hey, we want nothing to do with this. This is complete trash, garbage. This is foo-foo. This is pseudoscience. There's nothing behind this. You know, I I just, I'm mentally strong and therefore that's what it is. And I didn't understand the texture and layers of this onion until until much later. So finally, I remember, you know, his name was Dave. uh, And so David, I remember sitting on the dorm room floors and he's walking me through these mindfulness meditation and visualization exercises. I started to implement them throughout my training. I noticed almost instantaneous feedback of how wild my mind was and how difficult it was to concentrate on one sole thing. And then we started actually playing badminton for fun, like as like a little hobby on the side. So like before I'd go in the weight room for a weight training workout, I'd warm up for like a half an hour, just hit the badminton back and forth um, upstairs above the weight room. And Dave, who played tennis would take me along these exercises and you know I would like I would mess up on a serve or I would hit you know hit the uh, you know the shuttle into the net and he would make these little comments like what was going through your mind in that moment and it started to really piss me off and I was like what the, who, like who I was like N- what's going through my mind that I'm going to throw this racket at you that's what's going through my mind dave <laughs> And then he, then he started explaining to me the reasons why he wanted me to have a better conversation because he, I started to understand that I was having patterns. So when I started to lose, I would not lose one or two points. I'd lose four or five in a row. And it was usually the same mistake. And he was showcasing to me, he said, look, we can minimize the type of damage that you're doing to yourself. I can't, con- I can't control the outside competitors of what they're doing and how they're training, but I can control how you respond to the variabilities of what your sport gives you and what life gives you. And that was my first entrance into the power of the mind. I started using that consistently, won my first junior world championships, went to my first world cup, won my first gold, first bronze, then gold. uh, And then it was, that was the the, the defining factor. And then I started to incorporate that on a daily um, ritualistic component where I would do it pre-workout, during workout, post-workout, during massage, before I went to sleep, um, and it became a, a very strong routine and habit. And it was it's, – which it's baffling to me how many athletes in the world today do not still incorporate this. I mean this is – I don't know how you – know, compounded over time, this is 10% plus. It, it, the performance aspects are astronomical. And if you're doing everything else right in your life, you're eating right, you are tuned in and dialed in in terms of your equipment, your training is off the charts – if this is the, the, the difference, if the game within the game is where the real medals are won and lost, why are you neglecting it? It's not going to come naturally to everyone. So sharpen this tool because it's the one that's going to make the difference between crossing the finish line first or crossing the finish line fourth and not receiving a medal and then having to go back for another four years or eight years of your life and dedicate for that sole 40 seconds in which you're competing for. Uh, and, and, and I was blessed to get that early.
0: Yeah, so what was the difference between you at 15 and all the other kids at that camp? I mean, it sounded like was there a, that single moment playing badminton, playing tennis where it clicked for you? I mean, clearly, you had grasped that and understood it and started mastering it much, much earlier than or, or implemented much better than some of your other teammates that had the same exposure to Dave. What was the difference there?
1: I think that I I I had always wanted to go beyond what the team was giving us in terms of resources and access. And to give you an example of what that means. So as a part of the national team, the head coach, the program director and the assistant coach, they create the training program for the whole year. And they break that whole year training program and they create a timing mechanism, how to peak and how to have these peaks and valleys along your training, right? Um, So I saw that the coach would develop this training protocol for the entire team. And the athletes were doing whatever was on that sheet, they would do it and they would do it very well. And I felt, I was like, man, like if I'm training the same way as this other guy or this team or this person, how can I possibly be better? Yep. And that's what led me to try to seek out more, try to study, try to. Essentially, it was, it was it was all about work ethic. So, how could I learn more about the sport than any other person who was in the sport competing? How can I train harder than anyone else? How can I handle more training volume? How can I understand recovery? And those small incremental improvements trickled down all the way to mindset. I, I didn't just want to win. I wanted to. I wanted to do something that was extraordinary in the sport, and I wanted to surpass my own potentials of what was possible. And I just had an inner belief that the mind was the gateway into that different dimension of performance into the next era and the realm. And the only one who was going to go through that door was going to be me. And, and I thrived on it. When my team didn't want to do something, I made myself love that type of training. When the team didn't want to sit and be mindful of the time and, and have a still mind, it made me want to do it more, so I just I was competitive right and I sought it as these are all going to be small deposits in the bank, so eventually when I get to the Olympic Games I can make that big withdrawal whether I win or lose may not be my be within my control, but at least I'll be able to have a conversation with my, my myself in the mirror and say, you know what I gave everything I had uh, and I really believe I kind of left no stones unturned in this process and that to me is real strength that's real strength as you move forward and um you know, you arrive at whatever test that you're facing.
0: Yeah, that's a really cool axiomatic principle, almost leaning into what people aren't doing, right? You're not just looking at what people are doing. It's almost being instinctively looking at the gaps, and then being attracted and drawn to it. And I want to pull in a, a community question, actually, that kind of segues or relates to this topic here for Michael asks, how did parental upbringing play into this? And Mm-hmm. Does that inform your future children how you would might want to raise them? I mean, I think you, you've you seen the best athletes in the world always have interesting stories of how they're raised, how that culture was was almost installed or cultivated over time.
1: Yeah.
0: How much was that parental role model or coaching role models? Um, and how does that inform you as a coach, mentor, executive, parent, future parent? Um, how does that teach you on sort of the flip side as uh, someone that has has a bit of mastery in, 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 in teaching that to the world and sharing that to the world?
1: I was raised in a single parent household by my father, who uh, is a Japanese immigrant. He came to the United States when he was about 17 years old. <clears throat> my father didn't have any money, you know, it was kind of the, the traditional immigrant story where he you know, he left Japan uh, at an early age and came here, arrived, and tried to survive in an era which was really challenging. Didn't speak any English, didn't have any money, didn't know what to do, didn't have any skill sets that he had, and he just did it through perseverance and hard work and, and work ethic. My father, at a very young age, implemented into me two things. One was, you can truly become anyone that you want to be if you dedicate yourself. And so I believe that right? I just, I, if you get told that enough times when you're a child, it starts to become a part of your identity. And he was very adamant about that, both in terms of academic, in terms of learning, in terms of, <clears throat> in terms of sport. And when I would lose, or when I would not get a result that would be, you know, <clears throat> on, on, on top of the podium, my father would say the following. He would say, did a great job. That's amazing. How do you think you could have done better? So he always had these questions that he would ask me that would that would that would force me to ask myself the same question and so i think that there's this underlying philosophical belief that we can always continue for growth and it's not like my dad was was making a statement oh you got second that's not good enough you got to get first he was never never like that he actually was very happy regardless of the performance that i gave as long as I was able to look him in the eye and say, I gave my best, my real best, not only during, but before and the preparation leading up to that. And this was a very early age, okay? So, like here's five, Like five, like seven? Um, like- man, this probably started at the age of nine. Okay. At the age of nine. And, you know, I, I was actually a roller skater <clears throat> the first time before I was ever a short track speed skater. So, I used to like go to the ice skating roller rink. And I became part of the speed skating roller skating club. Most people don't even know what that is, right? But basically it's, you know, it's kind of like short track speed skating, but it's inside of a roller ring. And I, you know, I'm from Seattle. So in Seattle, an issue that we have is it always rains. So we can't skate outside for these outdoor competitions. I can't train. I was probably about 12 or 13 years old. My father would drive um, at around 3.30 in the morning. He'd wake me up and he would drive to these empty school and church parking lots. He would leave the lights on in the car, uh, 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 the headlights on the car. And he would make me there, wear this miner's light on my helmet. You know, the ones that kind of go like a little strap. Yep, yep. And I would just like go skate around like mindlessly because that was the only time that we had that it either wasn't raining or that I had free time because he wasn't working. That's where the work ethic components came came in, right? Was this, I mean, I was 12, 13 years old. Why the hell am I getting up at 3.30, 4.30 in the morning? It's just, like really insane. And then one day I told my father, I don't want to do this. Like, who the hell wants to wake up? That I mean, now I, I wake up pretty early, but back then, I mean, I'm a pretty young kid. Right? Why the hell am I waking up so early to practice? Like, no one else. Like, who else is doing this? And he got really upset, and he looked at me. He goes, "Do you want to quit?" And I got really scared. i like, was really, really afraid. Yeah, I was deathly afraid of my father growing up. Right? He's like the only authority figure that had like um, you know, control over my life in a certain aspect. And so he made me tell him the reasons why I wanted to quit. And as I talked myself through those reasons, I recognize I actually don't really want to quit. Uh, I just think I do. And I'm faced with a very difficult decision because this is hard. He didn't keep making me get up that early, but he wanted me to go through the exercise of having that open conversation of why it is that I actually don't want to do this anymore. And that was really powerful. That's, I mean, obviously it sticks with me today as I tell that story. And my father has always had a very interesting, blend of, you know, Eastern philosophy. So kind of this Japanese uh, philosophical approach towards life and towards, towards challenges in sport um, and mixed with, you know, like true Americana uh, and blending them in a way that he never gives me an answer. He's always posing more questions to me. Even when I ask him a question, he can't respond back with just a yes or no. He'll respond back with a question or a story. In which I'll need have to I, I have to decipher and decode the messages within that story, almost like a haiku. Um, so I, th- I think my father was very intentional in the way that he raised me in that aspect. Not saying that was Excellent. the right way, but um, I think he, he knew very early that life had many answers and unknowns outside of the world of sport. But he was using sport as a way to teach me these life lessons very early. Very, very early. Uh, and a lot of them had to do with my commitment and my strength and my dedication towards my true self. Can I have the conversation and be happy about the performances that I just gave? Even though I was a hyper radically competitive athlete, if I could find a way that I was mentally satisfied in a certain aspect with the effort, the time, dedication that was given, that is a true win very hard to reach but that is a true win
0: yeah it's very fascinating i was gonna say that it almost was like a socratic teaching method where the answers were always questions and that's how they how he helped you and you guys work together to find truth but coming from the japanese philosophy it somewhat reminds me of all the zen cohen's um where you're reading these like very mystical yeah almost impossible to decipher haikus or phrases and there's something about them like clicking and you get this like zen realization. I'm curious as you were growing up, it was very focused towards finding some axiomatic principles and self-reflection, self-understanding to channel into sport performance. But as you grew and matured, did you gravitate towards philosophy as a way to find inner mind mastery over other domains
1: I, I did I, I actually one of the first majors uh, that I was really interested in was both psychology and philosophy um, when I was studying as an athlete and I dove I really deep into books really around mental psychology and really into Eastern philosophy and I remember reading some books about uh, <clears throat> hearing about the power of the mind in some of these these monks that would live either um, high up in the mountain and their ability to withstand extreme temperatures uh, through these meditative processes and, and, and practicing, I just felt like the mind was 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 an untapped resource. And so I, I started to consume information at a very early age. And I found that if I wanted to go beyond what we normally thought was possible in the athletic realm in the US, I'd have to go and seek information outside. And so I started reading um, Chinese texts. Uh, I was very much a consumer of Nikos Kazantzakis. Report to Greco, um, Stoicism, uh, Zen Buddhism, mindfulness. Uh, a lot of these these teachings. You know, at, at the time, the U.S. Olympic Training Center had this incredible library of <clears throat> and blend of sports psychology books, biomechanic books, and philosophical books. Because in those philosophical books were a great number of teachings that the that the hired sports psychologists. Would really refer and defer to when an athlete was having a mental breakdown or cracking under pressure, or whatever these things were. And I just felt like, man, I was like, I wanna be that guy who has the ability to go on like a light switch and off like a light switch. And if I can create that flow state, whether it's reading Mihai, Chick Mihai's, you know, Entrance into Flow, uh, just understanding how powerful that is, that's how I'm gonna beat these other athletes. That's how I'm gonna beat myself. Uh, so i became really fascinated very early i think at the age of 17 is when i really started to dive deeper into those texts and you know th- the reality is i didn't really pay attention in school i mean we, we as a prerequisite you have to study to be part of the olympic training center and and maintain a certain gpa but I, i'm just being completely transparent like i i couldn't wait to get out of class just so i can get back to training or get back to the reading stuff that i really cared about and those things like those ancient texts which is really interesting right like how does Stoicism play into a modern world? You've got a like two thousand plus year old these these teachings that are in so incredibly powerful and relevant today. I just think that these philosophers <clears throat> and these thinkers of our of our lifetimes they're timeless and their teachings are timeless. <clears throat> and it doesn't matter what technologies have advanced in our world today. We are still human beings and we're still responding in our two million plus year old brains. In the same way to challenges and problems and arguments and situations and wins and failures, in the same way as we were back then. We haven't evolved that much. I mean, we've done incredible advancements in technology and growth. We're living longer. We've got access to technology. I mean, you guys are dedicated towards providing tools to help us perform at our absolute peak of potential. But our mechanism that has been hardwired is still the most challenging of all. And that seems to be the tool that we keep in the tool shed. We don't take it out and use it and sharpen it on a daily basis. Yeah, it's.
0: I think at the surface level, it's hard to understand how a uh, Olympian has to relate to a Roman emperor fighting off the barbarians or Chinese, Japanese monks <laughs> yes. sitting and meditating on the mountain. But I think you're exactly right. The monkey brain of ours has not evolved that much in a thousand, two thousand years. I mean, that's kind of a long time for years, but it's not that many generations, right? That's 10, 20 generations at the most, and evolution does not move that quickly. I mean, it sounds like you almost had won the Olympic medals in your mind before you actually even went to the Olympics. I mean, did you have this state of this confidence, this almost swagger? Like, when did you know you were the best? Did it really have to be like on the podium in 2002 and in and, and the, uh, and the, and the Olympic games, or did you have that swagger before you even, you know,
1: just to kind of recap what you just said. So it's funny because if you look at a short track speed skater, this like obscure sport, that's very small in the U S uh, you know, it's, it's heavily focused on in the Asian countries, but, and in Canada, essentially we're wearing spandex, right? Racing around a circle and i'm trying to equate my journey with the warrior mentality of that of a wrestler or an mma fighter or a yeah. boxer reading sun tzu's the art of war reading old military books cuz i wanted to be that warrior right I, I sought that i felt like that's the type of tenacity and strength and resilience i needed to be the best in the sport i knew in my head i had a chance to be the best in 1998 and it was a competition in hungary this was the post this was post 1998 uh, Nagano Olympic Games. So this is the season of 98-99. And I had raced against several athletes who I had been looking up to and studying religiously day in and day out. If I wasn't training, I was watching videotape. I was watching these athletes and I was studying them. And I had beaten three of the guys who I had looked up to at that time in my career. And it was at that moment I said, I can do this more often. I can win consistently. Four years before the Olympic Games. And you talk about... You know, did I win the game inside my head before I ever stepped foot on the Olympic start line? <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I replayed thousands of races mentally and visually, crossing the line first, finishing and winning gold. Uh, when, I, when I got to the games, none of those races went as planned. But I absolutely believe that I manifested that reality many times over. I, ju- I believed wholeheartedly, not that I would win. I believe that I had the greatest chance to win out of anyone else. And I was going to try to capture that gold if I could. And it was my shot on this day. Didn't matter how tired, didn't matter if I was sick, didn't matter if I was having a bad day, doesn't matter that NBC has a camera in my face right now. And it doesn't matter if I wasn't peaked on that day. It was my time and my chance. And I had done this a thousand times over in my head. Uh, I, mean, I, I could close my eyes, look down. And I could see my skate laces. That's how powerful my visualization was. I could feel it. I actually could sweat during visualization because uh, I, I could raise my heart rate. And so I just, it was a tool, man, like anything else. It was a tool that I, I used time and time again, and, and not only to visually see myself winning, but also try to visually uh, prepare for what could happen during a race. You know, not only for what I would want to have happen, because there's so many aspects of the sport that I cannot control. So you know, yeah. how many different types of strategies and scenarios can I play? Kind of like a chess player, I'm assuming, right? The chess player is always trying to have these simulations in their brain, um, time and time again. And so, uh, I I, th- I thought it was very interesting. You know, there is a story that I heard about a very very famous chess player, and uh, Bobby Fischer, <clears throat> yep. and it's called the Long Con. I don't know if you've heard this story, uh, Jeff, but the story goes that you know, at a very early age you know, he had developed a style, right? Many chess players have these styles of where their first several moves, one, two, three moves are always the same. And <clears throat> at the time it was Bobby Fischer versus the, you know, the Russians. So Bobby for 10 years straight, I think maybe it was more, but for 10 years minimum, he had done the same opening move every single time, every single game, except for one time when he went to the world championship, he actually secretly had been practicing his real opening move. So every Russian who has his whole team behind him had been studying this guy in and out. My friend Adam Robinson told me this story who, 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 who knew Bobby Fischer. And Bobby, first opening move, does something completely out of the ordinary. And the Russians were like, what the hell is this? <laughs> he, never, he hasn't done this in 10, in 10, 15 years. Yeah, That level of commitment is what was really inspiring to me. I, I and I did something like that for the final games, in which I showed up uh, in a way that no athletes even could recognize my skating style, my body type, etc. And I it was very very challenging, but it was it was fun.
0: Yeah, I think in the art of war, right? It's Sun Tzu's like you win the battle, you win the battle before the actual war begins, and a lot of it is deception and out-thinking your opponent. I mean, it just sounds like you you, you clearly come off very cerebral here in terms of how you've won in your mind before actually competing on the field. And uh, this brings like I think an interesting question again from the community. Masks asks, and I think this is relevant here, did you have a fear? I mean, it sounds like you've thought through how you're going to win, but I would also think that With someone that's cerebral, it's like you almost get the mirror of it. What did you fear? Was was there some paranoia of going through all the things that could go wrong? And how did you overcome the the mirror side of the positivity that you're visualizing?
1: That's a great question. Did I have fear? Absolutely, I had fear. And the fear was that I I wasn't good enough, that no matter what I did, Technically, I could not transfer the power that I would grow in the weight room to the ice. Speed skating is a very technical sport. The South Koreans have a very unique ability to transfer 100% of their power into the ice, which then accelerates them in a way that is very efficient. I use this example. Uh, A boxer who's always missing is going to punch him or herself out right? You get very tired very quickly because you're just not yeah. connecting versus actually hitting the pad over and over again. It takes a lot when you're not transferring that power appropriately. So my fear was, was always in my mind. And at the time, I, I, I just had a fear that I just wasn't going to be good enough to win. And that fear was then instead of used as a crippling or a paralyzing opponent, it was used as a lever. And so I leaned on that fear to continuously create consistencies in my routine on a daily basis, to be relentless in my daily and weekly and monthly goal setting process in the way that I ate in the way that I trained, in the intensity that I brought to the ice rink uh, it, it was it was a real everyday mattered right if, you, if that makes sense. so if you look at a four year period of building a startup, how do you look at this as everyday matters it, it's pretty intense, right it can wear on you over time but There wasn't one day that I didn't want to be at the ice rink training. There wasn't one day that I let slip that mentally I said that I'm just going to take today off and kick back. Never. It wasn't even, it wasn't like I didn't want those things. I just never let those, let those emotions in that conversation creep into my mind and stay there. I recognize them. That is natural human emotion and conversation I'm having. And I got rid of it right away. And I have a task and a mission at hand. The only way if I'm going to show up on that day prepared fully is if I attack this with every single thing that I have on a daily basis. And, you know, if you ask my teammates, they were, they were like, this guy was a little weird when he was training. He, was, <laughs> he wasn't he was the most friendly person and a lot of that because I was very inside my own head.
0: As you were training, how quantitative was the sport at the time? <clears throat> what was it like in terms of the quantitative aspect of your metabolism your training, your output? Did that evolve as the sport evolved, as the science evolved? Um, And then what has stuck with you in today? Uh, What are some of the principles that are useful more in the business or just broader world post-sport?
1: Yeah, those uh, those, those are great questions, man. Really great questions. Uh, So the sport, look, I, I started competing in the sport in 1996. So I knew nothing about nutrition and nothing about training and recovery. <clears throat> I grew up in an era where more was better. So I was probably overtrained most of my career. Uh, it wasn't until the very end of my career where we really started to pay attention to both nutrition and recovery uh, and all these other kind of you know, assets that we had access to. Uh, in terms of the biohacking community, which I deeply love because I love humans who are willing to experiment to seek out higher levels of performance uh, and quantitative data. We had, <clears throat> we actually did quite a bit. I think considering how long ago it was. So you know, the last four years of my career, I was, I was probably in a keto adapted state for most of the last uh, four years, and it was a cyclical keto diet, right? So I would go through waves where it would be, you know, extremely low carbohydrate intake, mostly, you know, caprylic and lauric acid um, as as a fuel source and a ca- a caloric intake, uh, moderate protein. And uh, that was really it. Um, to be completely honest with you, it was very, very minimal amounts of food, uh, high in fat, as as you guys know more than anyone. And uh, I was the only guy in on the team who was willing to do that. I mean, it was at the time the sports science and the sports nutritionists were. You should be having pasta salad before your workout, after your workout. Um uh, and fueling all the time and I just was like I don't know man I kind of feel like shit when I eat like that you know it tastes yeah. good but I just don't feel good this can't be good for everyone maybe for some people it works but for me I just felt heavy and sluggish and tired and I didn't feel sharp that was the most important thing so we we played around with the diet and the nutrition and recovery at an, at a very early stage we used to do tons of lactate testing lots of VO2 max and Wingate testing. Um, now the sport has evolved even more. So we had high-speed, slow-motion um, cameras installed all over the ice rink. We looked at uh, power-to-weight ratios. We knew how much weight we had to throw around in the weight room in order for that to translate into the ice rink. There was a lot of a lot of data that we used, but it was nothing to what is used or accessible today. I mean, literally nothing. And a lot of that probably was because we were just overtrained. We just thought that this is what you have to do. Is you just got, I just got to be tougher and stronger. I probably would have been able to subvert a few different types of injuries had I known much more about what I know today. On the technical, on the equipment, technical equipment side, there was many different types of equipment that we use to measure our skate. So the skate blade, as you can see behind me here, that's a 17 and a half inch long blade. It's one to 1.1 millimeters thick. There's a bend to the blade like this. So if, if you're going to look down the blade. Uh you can't see uh, I'm showing this camera here. Uh the, the blade is actually bent like this, right? Um, and this is what when you flex over onto the corner, the, the bend of the blade comes out ever so slightly, but still grips the corner that allows you to go around the corner. It also has a rocker. So those we have a gauge that measures the distance between these two points. Um and the distance is like the difference between like a thousandth of a hair. I could feel that on the ice when the numbers were not accurately in my blade so we become very millimeter focused is what we would call it and uh, it was the huge it was a big difference in terms of when my equipment was set up properly versus when it wasn't So we used a lot of these different kind of um, techniques and strategies. We looked at the track, the actual skating track. What was going to be the fastest skating track? What would be the best skating track for defense? So we had cameras uh, installed overhead and we could look down to see which athletes were skating, what type of a track pattern, the way that I would describe it as. Imagine you're on the highway. There's no one else on the highway except for you and another car. You're driving a Honda Civic. This person is driving a, a Ferrari and if you if you are driving the same track and lane as the Ferrari the Ferrari can never pass you it doesn't matter how much engine horsepower torque they have it's impossible so those strategies were used when we knew that other athletes were faster than us but we wanted to control their speed in a way that wherever they would move I would move right so you just you'd mirror that that um speed. And so there's lots of, lots of techniques and strategies that we used in terms of equipment. Now, how has this come into play post uh, career? Immensely. So I, I, eat nothing like I used to in terms of the strictness, but I definitely know what works best for my body. And, you know, I, I subscribe to a lower carbohydrate diet. Um, I, I probably do time restricted feeding seven days a week. Uh, I probably won't have my first calorie in my body. Um, I practice probably between a sixteen-eight and an eighteen-six. If I'm getting, if I'm in a mode where I really, really want to work a ton, I just do an OMAD diet where um, I basically have nothing until five or six p.m. every day. You know, I'll have I'll have a green tea or you know some caffeinated beverage usually early on in the day to kind of you know quench some of those those that ghrelin response. But overall, I'm I'm really motivated by because of right now, how can I maximize my output on a daily basis and how much of my day is actually spent around thinking about food, preparing food, digesting the food, and then how does that inflammatory period impact the way that I interact with the computer, the screen, my mind, etc. So, you know, when I'm off the wagon and I'm eating whatever I want, um, I'm happy and I'm fun and I'm social, but the quality of my work suffers. There is no doubt in my mind, I I felt that. And so if I could find a great balance between both of eating the way that I know works best for my body with the long term game in place, like we all know, you know, good friend Peter Atia. He's the long game, right? The guy's playing the hundred-year game. So how do I play the game that is gonna best suit me so I'm strong, fit, mentally acute, uh, when I'm a hundred years old, assuming everything goes well. How do I do that? And and what are the decisions and the actions I need to make on a daily basis in order to do that? Now it's challenging, right? Because we live in an environment where we're so socially connected to each other. And so Look, I when I retired from from sport, Jeff, there was a period of time when I partied, right? I, I'd been living like a monk for my entire 15 year career and now I wanted to let loose. And I recognized pretty early how badly my body does not respond to alcohol and ethanol in general. I just I just don't I don't do well with it. That's just, that's me as a person. So, you know, going back and forth, doing business in Asia. You know, that culture is still very vibrant. And, you know, whether you're drinking shots of Mao whether you're in South Korea having soju, whether you're in Japan having sake, uh, I just, I notice it's either red light or it's green light. There's no in between. There's no, oh, I'll have one or two. No, this is a real comp. This is this, these are this guy's Olympics. He's going to see if he can outlast you. And I just want no part of that because I can't recover in the same way. And it's not, it's not going to be best in my interests to, Produce my best work in that state. So, post career diet is a huge part of how I feel emotionally, cognitively, how I perform on a daily basis, how I wake up. Am I groggy? Am I tired? Am I going to sleep too late? Am I pounding too much caffeine later on in the day that it's starting to impact my sleep? Now I get in this negative spiral where I'm completely dependent, but do but in a way that um, I'm again, it's it's suffering in terms of creativity and output. So
0: very thoughtful, and I think. You know our, our mutual friend Peter Tia talks about like winning the centenarian Olympics. so I, I I'm sure that as you were going through your career, there was at some point that you were gonna be playing the next game. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, when did you have that plan? okay, what is the next game? Um, did you, was Was there a transition plan that you implemented before your last Olympic Games? Or was it all in, crush the last Olympics, then figure it out? Did you have a transition period? And then today in your you know 2020, what is the game that you're playing now? I mean, it sounds like you have too much energy and thoughtfulness to not do anything. It sounds like, obviously, we, can, we, we need to talk a little bit about the dance experience, uh, <laughs> some of the business experience. But yeah, uh, what is the game that you're playing now? What is the objective function? What are you optimizing for now?
1: Yeah, so y- your first question was the transitory period. uh, Was I prepared? Cognitively, I knew that the 2010 Games was going to be my last. And I hit the ground running as hard as I could when I did retire. So I wasn't ready. There was no plan B. I knew that I wanted to learn. I knew that I wanted to understand business. I knew that I wanted to interact with different people and technologies and companies all over the world. I spent a lot of time in Asia uh, and I just did the full immersion. But I... During sport, I was jumping out of the plane with no parachute. I mean, I was looking at the target. Nothing else mattered in my life, and that was it. It was all or nothing. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't recommend that to every athlete. Uh, I think there's a better path. I think you could still be all in, but it doesn't have to be nothing. I think you still have something in which you can explore and prepare for because that transition period is very violent for every Olympic athlete. It doesn't matter if you won gold or if you didn't make the team. Your soul identity is tied to this one thing that has nurtured you, it has taught you, it's given everything that you've ever had, it's showed you how strong you could be or how weak you are at times, and it's given you a roadmap for life that instantaneously can give you feedback. And when you snap your fingers, and I call it the great divorce, when that happens, no one is ready for it, some more than others. But no one is ready for that great divorce. And that person who you, which is sport, who you've dedicated everything to, looks you in the eye and says, no matter what you do, you can't come back to me. I have someone else who's younger, better genetically designed, works harder than you, better story, more marketable, blah, 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 right? And so you have to deal with this realistically and then start to plan what are the attributes? What is my real hammer? What is my strength that I have that I feel is a unique attribute to me? How do I start to go look for some nails and then not only look at life as hammer nails, but be open enough to be willing to fail, take risks, to learn, understand that life is a long game. It's highly unpredictable and be around people who can help you thrive, survive, grow, and push you in a way that will help you stretch uh, to get into that growth mindset. You know that you can do it for sport. It's a matter of transferring those skills into something that maybe not so physical. And I, you know, I, I recognized that pretty early uh, as an athlete, but I didn't prepare for it in any way. And so the first four years of my retirement uh, was spent exploring and seeing what I could do. And it was beautiful. It was an amazing experience. And I, you know, I, what drives and motivates me today? What am I focused on in 2020? Purely mission driven. Uh, you hear the passion in my voice when I talk about how much I love mindset and how neglected I think it is. We know that the mental health awareness is skyrocketing in this country and abroad. We know the type of impact that this pandemic is having on our society. We know the impact that social is having on our society and expectations, etc. How can I help impact lives? And so. I've been writing a book based on reinvention, adaptation, and high performance, Uh, how we can learn better, how we can pivot better, how we can adapt better, regardless of the circumstance, wins, and failures you've had in your life. And I'm really just mission-driven in helping people unlock the potentials of their mind, whether it's an organization, whether it's a team that I'm consulting with, whether it is a a company that I'm coming in and we're doing uh, strategy workshops around how we can create better empathy, gratitude, routines, uh, work ethic, grit, resilience, You know, I've got this five golden principles, which I religiously follow on a daily basis. We've got gratitude, we've got giving both yourself permission and others to help in terms of giving others um, what they need in terms of advice, knowledge, experience, et cetera. We've got grit, we've got uh, gearing up your expectations, and we've got getting into action. So 2020 and beyond is spent how do I be more productive on a daily basis? How do I reach many more millions of people? Uh, whether they're organizations, companies, to help them thrive, to help them become more resilient, and to unlock their true potential. That's what gets me up every morning excited is to help guide people to finding out their inner superhero.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So it's like scaling out Apollo Ono through books, through business, through all different yeah. channels that you're tapping into, which is, I think ultimately, that, that that's like a very rare experience that they're able to deliver and I think we can all get a little bit of inspiration if not guidance and practice to adapt some of the things that you've figured out. Changing it up a little bit, uh, I want to bring in another audience question. Slow Lettuce wants to hear about your dance experience. So, dance, it's hard to quantify progress in some aspects but given, you know, the the way you talk about knowing the millimeter distance of your blade on the ice, sounds like you have a very attuned proprioception or this notion of knowing how your body moves without necessarily to see it. Yeah. Tell us about the experience. I mean, maybe, uh, you know, yeah. being a champion of Dancing with the Stars is maybe <laughs> your most biggest award I mean, it would be beyond just Olympics. Uh, how was that experience like and, and how that translate in terms of peak performance in a very quantitative setting, right? Like you hit oh, the man. time you win versus like an art.
1: It's definitely an art and look, Dancing with Stars is a TV show at the end of the day. It's a reality TV show that I decided to go on and learned a lot about the industry itself. But dance is different, right? Because it's art and science. So there's a method to the madness in terms of how your dance instructor is teaching you. There's stylistic cues, there's counting in your head, there's the repetition, there's the practice, there's a pressure of trying to perfect two to three dances per week uh, when you only have four to five days to perfect those dances. So sometimes you got to lose a, you have to learn a full two and a half to three minute long dance in one day. Whoa. I look back on that and I'm like, man, I, I wish I, you know, I wish I prepared in, in a little bit of a different way for those things. Uh, I was still in the mindset that <clears throat> this is really all about hard work and work ethic. That's how I did it was, you know, when it was in the show. So the the experience was amazing. I think, what people don't recognize is you have a microphone tethered to you, tethered to your partner. There's a camera crew of two people who are filming this 12 hours a day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, for 10 weeks straight approximately. So there's no escaping. You you eventually just have to figure out how you can perform your best. And it was interesting. Uh, you know, we would watch tape. We would watch you know the dance and um, – it was a lot of it was just, just pure repetition. You just don't have time to think about anything else. But the experience itself was very powerful, very powerful. I had no idea that many people loved the show of dancing. And it really, you know, I would tell a story that after the dancing with the stars, I would go through the, I would go through the airport, people would stop me, not because of speed skating, but because of the show. And I was the dancing guy (laughs) versus an Olympic athlete, which is funny, right? Another identity. Yeah.
0: One of the things that I thought was interesting and you've discussed in the past was this evolution of body composition. Um, obviously, I, I think one of the interesting anecdotes was purposefully atrophying your upper body yeah. to maximize your weight to power ratio. Um <clears throat> curious to learn a little bit of that process, that thinking, that type of biohacking or human performance if you want to put it in that lens taking it to the business context or this scalability of your mindset of your, of your impact. What is the body composition that you're looking to optimize for now when it's a little bit more on like doubling down on the cerebral side, right? Like you're competing with your ideas now versus, uh, your, your weight to power ratio.
1: That's, That's great. Yeah. So in from 2006 until 2010, that became a very heavy focus in the sport of short track speed skating that the athletes who were very light but had high power to weight ratio were, were performing the best. So anyone from 2002 who was kind of still lingering on the sport where we, we were a little bit more bulky, we were, guys were still doing bench press and push-ups and pull-downs and pull-ups, that went out the window. <clears throat> and so it moved and morphed into this psychology of how do I atrophy my, up, my upper body in a way that I don't want to be carrying around that excess upper body mass in a way that would detract away from the corners because we pull 2.5 to 2.7 G forces every corner on one leg. So if I take off three pounds, five pounds of upper body mass that I don't need, uh, that's a lot of weight when you go through every yep. corner every time. And so that became a real focus on lifting no weights <clears throat> without straps or lifting no weights with our upper body, period, or not even carrying bags. So, you know, how do I truly embody the life of a T-Rex if that was gonna exist as a human? It was and it was painful because I went through a very catabolic phase in which I was just eating my own muscle time and time again because we we cut calories so severe and extreme, but crank the volume of training up. And you know there's nothing like going to sleep starving every single day and waking up starving for months on end and seeing your performance deteriorate in lieu of your body just simply not getting what it needs to grow and create hypertrophy etc so all the training went from no more hypertrophy training in the weight room and all of the training went to pure neuromuscular recruitment So, how do I adapt my body to become stronger, more explosive, and uh, create higher levels of pain threshold and lactate threshold without gaining size? How do I get smaller? And that came from a form of neuromuscular recruitment, which is a combination, which we use a combination of time under tension mixed with ballistic explosive movements when the time was necessary. So, first we fatigue the muscle, then we do something that is explosive, that is sports specific to activate this recruitment mechanism that exists inside the muscle that really I, th- I, I believe is instigated to help protect the muscle and the body from injury. So it starts to recruit muscle fibers that are not being activated in a way to allow it to contract and expand. It's a really fascinating topic because I think a lot of athletes now who are sprinters do that. So something that I saw uh, athletes doing is the day before – you know, a hundred meter dash or a sprint workout, athletes will be in the weight room doing very low rep, very high weight, explosive movement to activate that central nervous system and that total body neuromuscular conditioning. I've always felt it, right? There's some days I'd wake up the next day and I'm like, man, I feel really strong today or really powerful or really explosive, but I couldn't replicate. I didn't know the reasons why. And as the science went on, we started to recognize there's actually ways that we could train this. We could actually activate, I think it's type 2C, something like that, type 2CB muscle fiber. I, I forgot the actual term, but um, right. that's what we concentrated on a lot. Now that I'm no longer, it <clears throat> doesn't matter how high I can jump or those other aspects, it's all about how I perform. It's a blend between making sure that I'm sleeping well, making sure that the stress levels are mitigated in my life, making sure that I'm eating in a way that will best suit my articulation of speech, because I do so many public speaking and corporate speaking engagements, uh, I want to make sure that I have the ability to connect empathetically with everyone who I'm helping as an organization. Whether we're whether this is an executive coaching session, whether that's a leadership coaching session, whether this is designed to help increase sales, how do I do so that I can be in front of people, standing in front of them for eight hours one day, nonstop energy, and there's no dip. Because I want to make sure that everything we're giving them has actionable insights that they can take away. Uh, so I want to show up every single day as if it's the first time. So if someone came up to me and asked for an autograph, I want to sign that first person's autograph as if someone who came in a thousandth, that thousandth person who came in that same day says, "I want an autograph." I want the same level of inflection, energy, the first guy to the last guy. Right? How do you do that? Because that last person is not going to remember that they were the thousandth person in line. For them, it's the first experience. So the yep. same way that I interact with these companies, or with you, I've done four of these, it's noon here in, in LA. I've done four of these this morning, and my aim and my intention is to give you the same level of commitment and energy as it was as the previous three that this morning as the next four that I'm going to do after this today. So how do I do that consistently? The only way that I do that is understanding routine, schedule, optimizing the foods, the life, the supplements, all of this realm to help me perform my absolute best. And I think that we as human beings are addicted to progress. So once we start tasting that little bit of, hey, this feels good. I know what works for my body, my mind. We want it more and more and more. And that's the right type of addiction that we strive for.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I think it's like you really, like you can see that Olympic caliber discipline translating super nicely here. And I think that I want to bring another audience question that segues nicely here. Chrissy talks about the success in your practice. We can talk about within the athletic world and the sport world as well as the business and, and, and current roles. Um, did the metagame change as you started becoming like the favorite? Mm. Um, and I think now in the business world as you have a number of ventures going, does the meta game change? Or... Is there more pressure, less pressure? How do you think about the the, mm-hmm. the meta mindset here?
1: It's a great, hey, Chrissy. That's a great question. So, the meta mindset is interesting because when I was young and I didn't have the target on my back and I was the underdog, it was almost really easy to just keep growing and getting and and, and going from you know a hundred to ninetieth to fiftieth to twentieth to the top ten. Once you've won time and time again, and you're number one and you feel like you're the best that target on your back gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And more countries start to target that very specifically. So it changed, right? You've also been old enough to be able to experience your wins and losses. So you know what pain feels like, you know what failure feels like, you don't want to taste it again. And the inner game becomes more important. So the metagame changed immensely over the course of my career, a lot more introspective. And uh, I, I needed to understand that there was many things in my world that I could not control and I needed to really place all of my efforts and energy on the elements that I could control and that would dictate the level of happiness and fulfillment of my performance regardless of the outcome. I hope that makes sense. And now in the metagame, look, I, I've, I'm i a very curious person. Uh, I've never been afraid to take risks. I've always been out there putting myself out there as much as I possibly can. And I've been very blessed to have some amazing wins but also devastating failures and i've learned from all of those that's the beauty of i think life in general is that we have this movie reel that is just going to keep going on and we're in control of writing that script of which direction we want our superhero character to go down and we're writing this and as we turn the page every page is a blank page we look in the pat we look in the past pages the past chapters those are all moments of reflection and ways that we can grow and be better but what's important today and the thing that I think that I've realized in the past year and a half specifically is how much I love connecting with people and how much I love helping people be better versions of themselves. I love it. It's, it's a life mission of mine to help people unlock their own personal gold medal mindset. And if I could help them uh, create fractional improvements of performance to where they are happier at home more fulfilled and engaged at work. They are seeking progress in their personal goals, whether it's it's body composition, eating better, consistency, engagement with friends, whatever those spectrum of personal goals and micro and macro goals you have in your life. If I can help impact that group, that person, that team, that company in a way that elevates them, I feel like my life's mission is progressing in the right way. And so the meta, the meta uh, mine today is is revolved around much bigger and a longer game that has less to do with me and more to do with how can I create and curate um, systems and frameworks and ideas and programs, both live streaming digitally in person on stage during a conference or an event during a private session with an executive or their team Or creating digital programs that we can take people through to help them recognize the true potential of their mind and get them from moving from being a passenger in this life of a speeding train and into the actual driver's seat, grabbing a hold of that wheel understanding that we don't have control over all outcomes or the things that are flying through us on this life train, but instead we have control over how we react, how we respond, and what we decide to do next in terms of getting into action. That's my life mission today, and that's what drives me more than anything.
0: 100%, I can't think of a better way to end this conversation. I mean, I think just the notion around uh, this specific time where we do have a little bit of time to reflect and then be proactive. Mm. How do folks plug in and learn from you? I know you're on social. Where where do people dive in and and, and get with the program?
1: Yeah, I look, I spend a lot of time. um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook, at Apollo Ono across all those mediums. Uh, Look, I I think right now I'm you know, i am developed, we're redeveloping the website to really focus and hone in on some of these aspects. I feel like the world is hungry for collective insight and knowledge and growth, personal growth, particularly. How do we become more resilient? And, and I just, I want to give people a, a chance to just seek out their own inner superhero and their own inner champion. And I think it starts between the place that we forget to look the most and that's between our own ears. So uh, follow me, connect with me, interact with me, engage with me. I'd love to take the conversation further um, and I appreciate the time, Jeff. This was this was great.
0: No, Paul, this is great. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the man podcast. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit hvmn.com/pod Please remember to subscribe and if you're watching this on YouTube, please give this video a like and remember to hit that bell to get notified whenever we post. We also have a dedicated Discord server, which you can join by first taking a short survey and then I'll personally send you an invite to join the community there. The link to that survey will be in the description along with any other relevant links and we'll see you all next week.